This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Listen for more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. We always need to be able to express our commitment with the saints of all of the ages. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined by my friend and co-host, Dr. James Dolezal. James, how are you? I'm very well, Jonathan, and glad to be here with uh, a friend of mine joining the show. Yes, yes. Uh, we We are delighted to have as our guest, Dr. James Renahan. He is president and professor of historical theology at IRBS Theological Seminary. And he is here to talk with us today about topics related to Baptists and their early confessions. So, Dr. Renahan, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really glad to be with you. You know, one of the things that many people think about Baptists, and, and part, part of the reason for this is that many Baptists themselves would say this, is that Baptists don't have confessions. They don't deal in creeds and confessions. Sometimes they'll even say, no creed but the Bible. We're, we're the Bible uh, denomination or the Bible people. Uh, but but you have written a good deal about Baptists and confessions. So I wonder if you could just uh, uh, share with our listeners, uh, you know, how true or untrue that is in terms of the history of, of the Baptist movement. Yeah, well, that, thanks for asking that question. That, that's an urban legend. Um, <laughs> that'll that'll uh, shock and surprise some some listeners, but it really and truly is. Uh, William Lumpkin in the late 50s, or early 60s, published a book called Baptist Confessions of Faith, in which he demonstrated pretty well uh, that there's a long history of confessions that have defined what Baptists are all about. Um, my work has been focused on the 17th century, and especially on a group that are called the Particular Baptists. Um, Some of their confessions, the ones especially that I work with, are recognized in scholarly circles as the most important early documents that identify the nature of who Baptists are. And, and, you know, you you can look around. In 1881, there was a really important book called The Baptist Encyclopedia, published by William Cathcart, who happened to be a pastor in Philadelphia, Uh, James, that's that's a bone for you. Yes, um, I'm, I'm here in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. Well, Cathcart said, this is in 1881, that, that every sensible Baptist uh, holds dearly the confession of faith of uh, the London Baptist from the 17th century. So even as late as 1881, he could, he could recognize the importance of confessions in Baptist history. I would argue that fundamentalism and the detrimental effects of fundamentalism and the controversies in the early 20th century really um, took confessions of faith off the, the Baptist table and focused their attention on other items. If you, if you take a step back before, oh, let's say, 1910, you can, you can find that confessions of faith are very important in Baptist life, both in the United Kingdom and here in the United States. Let's let's step back from that to something a little bit more uh, a more basic question then, uh, Doctor Renahan, which is this: why, why did Baptists, particularly in your own sort of 
century of specialization, the 17th century, why did they feel the need to produce confessions? They were already part of some broad Protestant movement that believed in the inerrancy and the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. So were they just bullied into drawing up confessions because that's what other Protestants did? What is the purpose of those confessions? And you mentioned the early 20th century. Haven't the pressures that forced them to produce confessions sort of been taken away from us? So now we can sort of mercifully get beyond those confessions and back to the Bible, as it were. Maybe you could say something to a bit of that. Yeah, that, 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 there's a lot there to unpack. You can um, take your pick. Okay. Um, Let's go back to the 17th century. Um, the era, especially in the 1640s, was a period of real turmoil, political, religious turmoil in England. And that's, that's where the first very important English Baptist confession appears. Um, the, the Baptists had just come on the scene. They, a lot of people didn't know who they were. There were powerful people in Parliament who were concerned about them, opposed to them. They had opponents who were writing against them. The situation was very dangerous. And members of the Westminster Assembly, which began meeting in 1643, were well aware of the, the controversy, controversial language that was being used about the, these new groups that were appearing. So they made a public demand that um, these groups identify themselves and give uh, specific reasons for who they were, produce some kind of theological material that would, people could read and say who they were. And so it was about a month later um, that the Baptists appear with their confession of faith towards the end of the year 1644. And it, it very explicitly was an attempt to demonstrate their orthodoxy alongside of the Presbyterian and growing congregational movement that was present in 1640s London. So it was, a, it was an apologetic attempt to remove from themselves the, uh, the, the danger of uh, oppression, opposition, persecution, uh, imprisonment, exile, or even worse. Um, that was the, the beginning. Uh, Matt Bingham, Matthew Bingham, who teaches in London, has written some really great stuff on this, tracing down the background, the, the work of the Westminster Assembly, the demands, he, the timeline is, is brilliant, very helpful. But that, that was the beginning. It wasn't to say we're different. It was to say we're with you. We agree with you. Here are the reasons why. Now, they didn't hide their differences. And it's really interesting when you read the responses that come from those outside of their own circles, they sometimes begrudgingly, sometimes more happily acknowledge the orthodoxy of these early confessions of faith. Now, they, they point out that they don't baptize babies. They, they believe in believer's baptism, so they reject that. They're not like us in that. But in matters of Trinitarianism, Christology, justification by faith alone, soteriology, all the rest, the whole purpose was to be orthodox, and many recognized their orthodoxy along the way. And, and throughout the, the history of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, that was the function of Baptist confessions. It was not to isolate, but it was to agree, to demonstrate a, a level of um, Christian communion that, that we're orthodox like others. We sometimes think of confessions as um, sectarian. This is to cut us off from this and that and the other. You're saying that these confessions were something more ecumenically oriented? Absolutely. Certainly, that's the case. 
um, that, that, was, that was the purpose of this first London Confession that was written in 1644, and then interestingly revised in 1646, and many of the revisions came as a result of comments that were made on their first edition. Um, they, they changed things to satisfy the criticisms that came against them. It was even more of an effort to ameliorate the differences. Um, then in 1677, they published a new confession of faith, incorporating language from the first. And in the epistle at the beginning of that confession, they, they do the same thing. They say, our purpose is to demonstrate our agreement. Uh, we, we are grieved by the fact that there are differences among Christians. We want to show that there is agreement because we love those who disagree with us. Uh, we have so much in common and we have so little that is different. So fast forwarding to the 20th century and then even to today, those particular questions or even demands aren't really imposing themselves on, on the Baptist world or really any, any uh, branch of, of the evangelical church. But you would argue that, that these confessions are needed today. They're necessary. They're useful. They're, they're good for Christians to study and embrace even today, Baptist Christians to study and embrace even today. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and the reason for that is that the, the need for an orthodox statement of who we are is the same in every age. Uh, one could say the same in every decade, the same in every year, the same in every month. We always need to be able to express uh, our, our commitment with the saints of all of the ages. See, that's one of the things that a, a good confession does is that it ties us to the past. It allows us to speak with one voice along with Christians all the way from the apostolic era. Um, a, a good confession of faith in, in our tradition, and by tradition, I don't mean Baptists, I mean, broadly speaking, Protestants since the Reformation. Our confessions pick up the language of the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Chalcedonian Declaration, um, the commonalities that are present in post-Reformation confessions. And so when, when you look at these statements of faith here in the year 2020, you're able to say, this is what Christians have always believed. We, we join with their voices so that to use Lewis's, C.S. Lewis's phrase, we're not, we're not subject to chronological snobbery, but we recognize this truth. And, and I would argue that, that that's one of the defaults or no, the defects of modern Christianity is that it has wandered away or drifted away from a real commitment to orthodoxy. It has become so oriented on uh, loving Jesus, which is important to do that it forgets who Jesus is and what it means to love him, that it means to love him and to love your neighbor as yourself, that it means that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Uh, and being God, he is uh, a person of the Holy Trinity. Being man, he's one with us. Th these things are implied in those words, loving Jesus. So we can't reduce Christianity to a couple of phrases. We, we have to expand Christianity and confess with the saints of all of the ages what orthodoxy is as it's taught in Scripture. And implicit in that is the notion that Christianity is based on history and it, and it is uh, by its very nature, global and universal Catholic in that sense. And, and, and that those features need to be a part of our faith in order for it to be an authentic expression of, of the faith. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I like your use of the word authentic. 
um, Christianity is not something that comes to us in the 21st century. It is based on not just 20 centuries of Christian history, but it's based on the apostolic era and all that went before in the revelation that God gave to his people Israel from creation forward until the coming of Christ. All, all of the Bible has to be incorporated into that. I, I will just simply observe as the, um, as the one non-seminary president in this discussion, because I'm talking to the president of a Presbyterian seminary and the president of a Baptist seminary, but I think this, this is part of that um, objective of the 17th century uh, forebearers to to recognize a deep and abiding orthodoxy in the faith that isn't even, in many respects, originally Protestant. These are things that are the truth of the hypostatic union mm-hmm. and of That's the right. of the um, incarnation and of the trini- of the Trinity and even of the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture are things that are bequeathed to us uh, from Scripture and from those faithful apostles and those who followed them who held them, so that there is. So the, I think Richard Muller once talked about Reformed Orthodoxy having a Catholicizing tendency, and by that he didn't mean um, downplaying differences with Rome. He meant showing Rome that we didn't just that we're not some sectarian thing that fell out of the sky and has no continuity to the Church and the Apostles, but actually we we share that. So whatever our differences about baptism or ecclesial polity might be that there is there is something fundamentally catholic and christian that binds us together so that we can call each other brother and you know maybe we have different seminaries but we have uh, a common a common faith yeah i think it was anthony lane in his book on calvin and the church fathers who said that uh, in some ways the reformation was a debate over how to properly understand the fathers mm-hmm. of the church I think that that's a brilliant observation because it's true. You know, when you read Owen uh, in his work on the Holy Spirit, for example, he has a really long chapter on conversion, what conversion is about, and he illustrates it from Augustine's Confessions. Now, that, that's a great illustration to use, but there's a hidden agenda there, and it is to say Augustine <laughs> is ours, he belongs to us, and we are the true heirs of Augustine. We, we share his view of what genuine conversion is. Well, and I think it, it, it's to to the point uh, that you were making about our, despite our differences, the great commonality, I think particularly in an anti-confessional age, it, it becomes even more obvious the great heritage and, and theological convictions that we share in common. Th- those, those seem to me to be much, much more pronounced than any differences that that may exist. Um, l- let me transition just very briefly here because I, we don't want you to leave without talking a little bit about this. You're working on a project that is related to that first London confession. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about it? I know it's not, it's not out yet. I have not been among the privileged few, although my co-host has, who ha- ha- has seen this work, but uh, perhaps you could explain a little bit about it. Yeah, um, I have signed a contract to do a two-volume set on the two major 17th century Baptist confessions. I've turned in the manuscript for volume one. Um, It's called uh, For the Vindication of the Truth, which comes from the title page of one of the editions. But it's it's an exposition of the first London Baptist confession, published in 1644, revised in 46, and then slightly revised again in 1651. Volume two will be an exposition of the second London Confession, 
which was published in 1677 and then adopted by the Philadelphia Association in the United States, well, in the colonies in 1742. So I've, I've been working on that for a long time. I've been, uh, I teach a course on Baptist symbolics where we study these confessions of faith. And I hope that this exposition will be a means by which people will understand the, the, the Reformation heritage that belongs to uh, the Baptists from the middle of the 17th century in, in London. That will be published by Founders Press. Is that? Yes, Founders Press. I don't yet have okay. a date. Um, I'm hoping maybe by the end of the year or certainly next year. Next year is the 375th anniversary of the 1646 edition. So that's a, a very appropriate year uh, if, it, if it has that uh, date. So a up. few months time and then hopefully listeners will be able to have that. God willing. God willing. Yeah, we would commend that to our listeners. Any, any of you who are interested in Baptist history, confessional history, or the theological work that was being done in the 17th century, keep your eye out for that uh, volume. Uh, Dr. Renahan, thank you very much for giving us your time today. We really appreciate it. It's always good to talk with you. And perhaps when, uh, when volume two is um, in, in production, we'll be able to uh, revisit this conversation in more detail. Thank you. That would be very nice. Thank you very much. James, I know that you and Dr. Renahan are close friends and have collaborated on a number of projects. I was struck when I was listening to him that in a, in a sense, the fact that many churches and perhaps particularly some Baptist churches don't want to identify with these confessions is a way of identifying with our anti-historical age. I mean, he talked about this chronological snobbery idea and, and it's a well-known feature of modern life. People want to escape history, escape the past or, or denigrate it. And, and in a sense, abandoning confessions for a kind of doctrinal minimalism plays right into that, but it's not Christian. I think most who do that probably wouldn't think of themselves as chronological snobs as much as they would maybe think of themselves as just trying to be biblical. And so I think that's really the question, though. The question is, um, is, is a confession a good way of being biblical, you know, in the sense of the real test of its truth claims is, does the Bible require me to believe this? And then what you may find out, what hopefully you'll find out is, yes, it does. And by the way, this is a very good way of expressing that. But I think as, as uh, Dr. Renahan brought up, the language, the phrasings, even in the Westminster Confession or the Second London or the First London Confession, these all have sources, some of them close in proximity, other ones going back to the Apostles and the Nicene uh, and, and Chalcedonian um, creeds and symbols, so that there really is a sense of a Christian witness that is Catholic in the sense of universal and that spans the ages, um, and that these confessions are not simply um, registers of disagreement, but they really, they really are um, records of, of agreement and of well-thought-out doctrinal consensus. And that, that's got to be valuable uh, to any Christian at any time. It was an intriguing discussion, and I look forward to reading his historical work when it's, when it's finally published. Uh, we're grateful to you for listening to our interview today. 
And we love hearing from our listeners. So if you if you have a moment and want to drop us a line or, or even post a review, we do read those as well. And so we'd encourage you to do that. If you know anyone who might benefit from this podcast, please pass along the information to them. And because uh, uh, many of you may be interested in going a little further, uh, we would invite you to go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link. There'll be a, a button there for you to press to register to win a copy of the Baptist Confession of Faith and the Baptist Catechism. It's a one-volume work that, um, that, that interfaces with many of the things that we discussed today. Uh, you can also uh, find it, I believe, online through Solid Ground Publications out of Carlisle, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, also, if you're able to donate, um, it, you can go to AllianceNet.org. There's a drop-down option there or PlaceForTruth.org where these podcasts get, uh, get put online. If you want to find out more about the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, there should be information available at both of those sites. As always, we thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine, clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary, equipping preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom among the nations.